Okay, guys, it has been a hot minute since I was supposed to release part three. It's been about a month since I released part one and part two of the Black Lives Matter series. And that's because I came to the realization that I cannot be unemotional when I'm talking about white supremacy and police brutality. This is some fucked up shit. Part one and part two was very diplomatic and took way too much energy to do that. Oh, and that reminds me, this is going to be an explicit episode, so if that's not what you're into, I would recommend that you go ahead and read the books that I will list in the description of this podcast. Those are great reads and the sources that I used to research all three parts of this series. As for everyone else, if you want to learn how to take down white supremacy, keep listening. This is The World We Inherit, and my name is Anita Kirti. Thanks for listening. As a rough recap, part one and part two, we thread the needle of white supremacy starting from the 1600s all the way until 2000. So you see the start of slavery prior to the founding of America. Slavery goes on for hundreds of years, and then you have the Civil War that ends slavery. But there's a continuation of a different strain of white supremacy from the 1860s to the 1960s through things like the Jim Crow laws and voter right suppression and the KKK terrorism. After you hit the 1960s, in part two, we talk about how after the civil rights movement, racism is now considered morally wrong. So white supremacy does another shape shift and presents itself as colorblind racism, where the subjugation of black people is converted into coded language in politics and in the public that fuels the war on drugs from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, creating what we have today as the criminal justice system. Since the criminal justice system is one of the iterations of white supremacy today, that's our main focus for the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm going to kind of rewind to 1960s. You see the development of dog whistle politics, which is where politicians are expressing anti-black sentiment through coded language and resurrect the black criminality stereotype to feed into white backlash that happens after the 1960s civil rights movement. That idea is copied by many politicians following the 1960s people like Barry Goldwater, who started this idea of tapping into white backlash with coded racism. It was still just talk. It's not until Nixon's time where he weaponizes colorblind racism. He couples the black criminality idea with the drugs and tries to really institutionalize colorblind rhetoric through the criminal justice system. He doesn't make extremely significant strides, but he is the first guy to actually couple those two things together. And who really does it best? Reagan in the 1980s. And he was part lucky because crack and cocaine become a problem in that time, but also he is very good at tapping into that white anger. You can consider Reagan the Mark Zuckerberg of colorblind racism in the criminal justice system, and Nixon like the Winklevosses. Okay, so... In the Reagan era, you see this triangle of something. I don't know what I even named it, but I'm going to call it the triangle of fuckery. Sorry, mom, but you know, that's exactly what it is. You have the media pumping out imagery of black criminality and ratcheting up these fears of black people. 
and the white public who is eating all this up. They've always had an internal resentment to black people and the media is feeding into what they've always thought to be true. And then you have the policymakers like Congress who passes a bunch of laws that provide funding and protections for the criminal justice system to basically target the black community. These three actors set themselves up in the Reagan era, and they continue all the way until the 90s. It's not just the Republican Party that feeds into this. It's the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, all of them that are trying to curry favor with white middle-class America who want to maintain white supremacy and separation from black people. And that's kind of how institutionalized racism in criminal justice system levels up throughout the 80s and 90s. Around every election year, you start seeing more funding given to police officers and Supreme Court decisions that give protections to police officers to racially profile. So in that trajectory, you start to see the criminal justice system grow and grow through the 80s and 90s. And suddenly in the 2000s, it just kind of drops off. That's because we find a new thing. We do the whole war on terror, so the war on drugs fizzles away. But the sad part is, is that it's still continuing. The system still functions. Nobody dismantled it and left. It was kind of like people left and never looked back. Since then, since the early 2000s till now, the criminal justice system continues to take black lives. But it's almost more sinister because it's something that we don't even talk about. It's not in the news or in the public conscience at all, which has let the rest of us be in blissful ignorance about any of this happening. From racial profiling and choosing who to stop, to the probability of using force during an arrest, to the number of charges you get from a prosecutor, to the amount of time you get in jail, to the probability of returning to jail, all disproportionately affects black men and women compared to any other population because that's how the system was designed. So when I say the criminal justice system taking black lives, I'm not just talking about the horrific murders that happen in police encounters, but all the lives lost in the prison system, all the lives lost in trying to return to society. Okay, so that was the basic gist of the 1960s to the 2000s, which gives you an idea of what the system is right now and what the Black Lives Matter movement is fighting. So if you want to know the more detailed version of what I just talked about, please listen to part two. Let's move on to the big takeaways. So the thing that drives the creation of the criminal justice system is obviously white supremacy. And the form that it chooses to take is colorblind racism, which almost makes white supremacy immune to criticism or even acknowledgement of its existence which is a pretty strategic maneuver if you're trying to increase the longevity of white supremacy. It's actually what's called post-racial America in that it's pretended as if race doesn't exist and everything is equal when in reality that's not true, which is funny to me because we want that too. I want to live in the world that you think exists. We're not having a party with this. That's the whole point. So anyway, let's talk about what it looks like, because I promise you, you have heard colorblind racism in your life. It's not just a thing politicians do. It's a justification used by a large number of people. A researcher named Eduardo Bonilla Silva made a framework of colorblind racism. One of them he calls abstract liberalism. 
which is using ideas associated with liberalism like equality in an abstract manner to oppress minorities while appearing reasonable and moral. So things like the All Lives Matter movement, which uses this idea of equality while blatantly ignoring systemic racism to mask anti-black views in a way that is not just neutral, but actually moral. It's an ass-backwards thing, but also hard to argue with because this kind of argument almost seems reasonable and moral. But in reality, the entire premise of it is wrong. It lies in the idea that racism doesn't exist. I don't know if I have to make an argument for that right now, because that's just a whole thing if you think that racism doesn't exist. Another one is cultural racism. I hear this a lot, where people say things like, oh, black people have more criminal tendencies, which is why they're disproportionately represented in the prison population, which is insane. It basically blames the culture of a race to justify disparities. If you really step back, its basic framework is black people as a race are unevolved, therefore they get imprisoned more, which is nothing but racism and pure bullshit. Okay, so those are just a couple of the ideas. He goes on to build out a pretty elaborate framework. I'm going to link that resource in the information of this podcast because I think it's a great read. So that being said, all of these rhetorical tools are used as justifications to maintain the idea of white supremacy. The criminal justice system is a manifestation of this idea. It didn't sprout up from nowhere. It very much is a extension of white supremacy, but this time it's backed up by colorblind racism. Which brings us to the Black Lives Matter movement today, the reason why we started this conversation. You wonder to yourself, okay, right now this is all seemingly very obvious, but what took people so long to call this bullshit out? Because it's not particularly ingenious, you know? It's racism adjacent. Like, it's, it's right there. Michelle Alexander has a few theories as to why, since the end of the war on drugs in the early 2000s, people have been silent about this. And that's because of this idea of black exceptionalism, where people point to mainstream successful black people and say that, hey, if they could do it, that means racism doesn't exist. Like, if Barack Obama can become president, then there is no such thing as racism. So this one person disproves the experiences of millions of people, which saying it like that, it's obvious like that makes no sense. But that idea kind of placated us and kept us from really talking about calling out the criminal justice system. If you remember the first major story of a policeman shooting a black child, that's when Barack Obama was in office. So it was kind of this anger of, look at this horrendous manifestation of white supremacy, but at the same time, Barack Obama's president. So it's almost dampened the anger and belief that racism truly is that significant. And obviously, there's a whole bunch of gaslighting, but colorblind racism is one step away from blatant racism. So it gives people enough plausible deniability to say, oh, like, I wasn't doing that because I was racist. And that's an experience that every person of color has experienced in America, where you know that the specific action was done because of your race, but there's not really much you can say about it. So how does that change in 2020? As crazy as it is, it's Donald Trump. I mean, obviously that wasn't his intent, but he ends up doing that. This dance that every other politician played 
especially Republican politicians, where they use coded racism in a way that speaks to their electorate and cashes in on that white resentment and anger, but not blatant enough to be officially labeled a racist. They were much more skilled in this dance than Donald Trump was and is. He just comes out and says, Muslim people are terrorists, and he just says the words, which is completely antithetical to how colorblind racism works. So this strategic maneuver that has been used kind of shatters with Donald Trump. The first reaction to Trump becoming more and more popular during the primaries in 2016, where a lot of Republicans were talking about how he was un-American and he's a racist and he's this and that, I don't think they were angry at the lack of moral integrity in Donald Trump. I think it was kind of like, dude, you're blowing up our spot. So whatever thinly veiled racist foundation they had is completely exposed with Donald Trump. So what all of that talk does is it creates this realization amongst moderate white people and even white Democrats where they're like, oh, racism still exists? What the hell? In their world, they were truly living in blissful ignorance about racism. Donald Trump was their come-to-Jesus moment, you know? In June, actually, the greatest jump in polling numbers when asked about if the criminal justice system was unequal was amongst independents who jumped from 41% of people agreeing with that statement to 65% of people. The second biggest jump was for white Democrats. This comes from a Washington Post and ABC poll, which only goes to show how the awakening of the white moderate and white Democrat has played a significant part in making the Black Lives Matter movement mainstream the same middle America that allowed for the war on drugs to continue and even fed into it is now cognizant of racism. During this time also that you have the black community who's looking at this guy and cannot believe what they're looking at. The racism is so blatant and so vile. There is rising anger there where all of these things that were told to the black community to keep them quiet, those things completely fall away. You cannot explain away racism now with black exceptionalism. You just pointing at Beyonce is just not enough. So that's starting to brew throughout the Trump administration, 2017, 2018, 2019. We get into 2020, you see Corona come in and amplify the inequities that have always existed. And all of these factors culminate into the Black Lives Matter movement, something that was really considered this radical idea. Nobody wanted to really associate with them because they were very controversial. When Colin Kaepernick took a knee, the NFL did not stand for it. <laughs> Get it? Like, didn't stand for it because he's kneeling. <laughs> Damn. Okay, the ideas that came out of this movement spread to other communities as well. For Native American communities and Hispanic communities, it opened up this conversation of anti-racism. And even this idea of being a bystander is contributing to the violence against the black community becomes a mainstream idea, which previously wasn't considered so. It was okay to not really say anything about racism or speak up against police brutality. Just yesterday, the WNBA, NBA, baseball, and even tennis canceled their games in protest of the shooting of Jacob Blake, which goes to show how much pressure the public is putting on people in places of privilege and power, and even the responsibility they feel themselves to speak out against racial inequalities and police brutality. 
Okay, so that was how we got here, what happened, why the Black Lives Matter movement took center stage this summer, and that brings us to the question of where we go from here. Number one, yeah, the criminal justice system should be reconstructed to remove policies that target black people, but I think the more salient point and the point I was trying to make by creating these three parts is to keep an eye on the thing that drives the criminal justice system, which is white supremacy. As Michelle Alexander argues in her book, if that central drive is not eradicated, it will keep reincarnating just as it has for hundreds and hundreds of years. And if you feel like, well, that's a huge concept, right? Like, how do you eradicate white supremacy? I think it really starts at the individual level something that's actually been embraced by a lot of Black Lives Matter supporters, where every individual takes it upon themselves to consciously work against this ingrained idea of white supremacy within ourselves, and also to talk to our family members, to our friends about things like colorblind racism, saying things that are rooted in racism but are unaware that they're doing so. And I think that's a significant part of the population that is propping up colorblind racism even today is people who don't even know that they're contributing to it. So having those conversations and making it the norm to hold ourselves accountable for the way we contribute to anti-black ideas is where we start. And because I waited this long to do part three, I went back to see how views have been changing or if white people continue to be supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, and it was really upsetting to see that, according to a YouGov and The Economist poll, white people are already returning to pre-Black Lives Matter movement support of criminal justice equality. In June, 49% of white people said that racism was a big problem, and polling done in early August now shows that that number has dropped to 33%. So it's crucial now more than ever to continue to be passionate champions of the Black Lives Matter movement, despite there being less and less conversation. That is the end of part three. I hope that you learned something from this. I really urge that you continue to fight the good fight. Thank you for listening to The World We Inherit. I'm your host, Anita Kirti. Mum, 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 mum.